Hey, I'm Sydney. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Two for the Matinee. Where we talk about movies that we remember, we love, and that we love to talk about. So, here comes a spoiler warning, because these movies are about to get spoiled. Okay. Did you watch Class of 1984? I think we're going to have to make this a double episode, because there's a lot to talk about. So, let's recap. Because last episode, we talked talked about two movies featuring students and teachers, the faculty and 187. And when we were talking about the faculty, I said that it reminded me of a movie called The Class of 1999, which I had seen at some point in the past. When I looked up that movie, I found out that was a sequel to a movie from 1982 (laughs) called The Class of 1984. So then we both went and watched The Class of 1984 the class of 1999, and then I also watched Half Nelson that you brought up last week. Oh, dang, yeah. So this so, is part two. So this was a week of movies, well, two weeks of movies about the educational system. <laughs> yes, and the educational system in extreme. Yeah. Because my high school was never like that. For better or for worse. But uh, so with the class of 1984, I think it, it felt like there was a direct connection to 187. Yes, I felt like that was a really strong inspiration for that screenplay. Well, to start, um, like the opening sequence, they show kids graffitiing the walls, tagging the walls, which we also see in 187. Uh, the, the teacher, when he, when he meets because it's his first day and he meets one of the other fellow teachers. He discovers that the fellow teacher is carrying a gun in his briefcase. And in 187, same thing happens, except there's a gun in the teacher's drawer, right? Yes. And then as soon as he arrives to class, there's like the bad kids disrupting it. Yes. A lot of parallels. Do you, okay, so I read some reviews of 187 and I really don't recall any of them mentioning class of 1984 as a touchstone for that film. They, I mean, I haven't read any reviews of 187, but yeah, that's, I, I don't know, maybe ni- the class of 1984 wasn't popular enough that enough people saw it where it would just call to mind. True. Because it is, it's an exploitation film, class of 1984. Uh, Define exploitation. And that it's like sort of almost like a grindhouse violence type movie where it, yeah. it takes the violence to the extreme and the emotions are to the extreme. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of on the tail end of that, right? Because it's the early 80s and mm-hmm. Grindhouse peaked in the 70s, right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm just thinking like the sort of sensibilities of it. Yeah. You know, when I, when I watched it, I wasn't thrilled with it. But thinking back on it, I've, I've come to like it more. And I think I want to watch it again. But one thing that stuck out to me was that it felt very 70s except for the ending. Because I think if this movie had been made like five years earlier, the protagonist wouldn't have lived. Yes, I, I can agree with that. It did feel very 70s. Even the way that it was shot looked like it was something that they carried over from like the late 70s. Yeah. They're, because the 70s, uh, it's always, I've always found it an interesting decade for movies because they were so, they tended to be very dark and very nihilistic and very... Mm-hmm. Um, pessimistic as pessimistic, well. Pessimistic, yeah. And it almost like 
it was it, it like became a trope for me because I knew if a, if a movie ended with like a tragic ending where the hero dies, it was made in the seventies, and I could just list off movies that had that. It just became like a staple of that decade, which I kind yeah. of enjoyed because you don't get that much. You don't get that anymore as much once in a while. Yeah, you don't. But the movies when you're saying like the the protagonist dies at the end, those are like mainstream movies too. Those aren't like art house films, you know. From the seventies or yeah, no? no, from the seventies. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen too many art house films from the seventies. I don't think I've seen any art house <laughs> films from the seventies actually. Well, Maybe it, some foreign ones. I guess foreign would be considered art house. Well, doesn't it almost feel like mainstream movies from the seventies felt feel very art house today? They, do, I, I think that they do. And I think, I think a there's lot- a sophistication. Um, so I rewatched part of Dog Day Afternoon recently, and that's like a mainstream studio film. But today, that would definitely be like a niche art house type film. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, that's the decade where that, that group of, uh, who's, it's like Scorsese, Spielberg, um, De Palma, and um, the guy who directed the Coppola. Exorcist. Coppola and the guy who directed uh, Fried, Friedkin is it Friedkin? Friedkin, Friedkin yeah I mean yeah. they were like this gang of like ambitious young filmmakers and Brian like, De Palma Brian De Palma I said De Palma oh did you oh yeah. sorry yeah and De Palma so they were out to make a statement and like you know that's considered sort of like their peak in some mm-hmm. ways I think mm-hmm. so they brought a lot of that raw uh raw ener- creative energy and I think because they were they're all such lovers of film and they, they like, if you look at these lists, like I know with Scorsese, he has this list of his favorite films. It's like all this famous like art house and French new wave and all this like kind of like uh, deeper stuff from the fifties and sixties. So they all, they were all bringing that over into yeah. the mainstream. And, and they were allowed to do so because, you know, it's one thing to watch a French new wave film as a filmmaker in like 1962, you probably wouldn't be allowed to do that, make any, anything close to like that because of the restrictions put on them by the studios because the studios still had a lot of control yeah but by the end of the 60s it's a completely different ball ball park is that what you say ball field ballpark playing field there we go i found it different completely different playing field because the studios don't have that much control anymore and the directors are the ones with the control so that's why we the whole shift in tone uh and films it's almost like uh, there was all this pent up angst that was being held back by the by the ratings and the studios, and then it mm-hmm. like the dam burst, right? Yeah, and, and they then, were holding back sort of artist. They were holding back artistic expression because at the at the end of the day, the studio gets to say how that movie is going to look. Yeah, and now we've we've. I feel like we found ourselves back into those pre seventies days. I was just thinking. I was just thinking that <laughs> totally. Whereas like Disney puts like restrictions on their films because they won't aren't allowed to be played in China if certain things are no. shown. Yeah, it's kind of back back to where we were. But on the other hand, if you're a filmmaker and you want to make something interesting and unique, you you're kind of living at the at the best time right now because the the cost, the entry cost for that is so low. Oh and yeah, and there's so many places for people so many places for people to see. Yeah what you your vision what you want to create because there's so many platforms yeah but yeah so class of 1984 has those sensibilities (laughs) even though it's made in 1984 right
Yeah, I think it, uh, yeah, this, it's something about it stuck with me. So I think at some point I'll watch it again. Yeah, and that whole um, sort of conflict between Mr. Garfield and Cesar was totally played out the same exact way yeah. with um, Stegman and what was the teacher's name? Andrew something. Mr. Yeah, it's, it's Mr. So Norris. Mr. Mr. Norris. Norris. Yeah. Yes. And it was sort of like there was that one moment where the train could have just stopped before it went off the rails. Yeah. And that's when the teacher was holding, telling the class, you know, he's the music teacher and he's telling the class, you know, we're going to start a chamber or- orchestra. And Stegman, this kid, is he's bad as fuck. Like he is a bad kid. Like he runs a gang. He runs prostitutes. He sells drugs. He sells, sells drugs. He's just not a good kid. He might be Um, a white supremacist. Like there was a hint of that. And then they never really referenced it again. Right. I just assumed they were white supremacists. I think one of them had a, like a swastika tattoo. So um, yeah, he's not a cool dude, but he can play the piano. And according to him, he was the best piano player in the school. And even the teacher was kind of taken aback at how beautiful his piano playing was. And then he's like, no, you can't be the chamber orchestra. Yeah, I wish they just like took that just a little bit further. Like what, it was such a great surprise finding out that he's this virtuoso, right? Mm-hmm. But then- like, Where did that come from? Yeah. And like uh, also the scene with his mom, like there, I felt like there was so much there and it was just like, they, they gave us a little bit. I just wanted a little bit more. Yeah, because he didn't live in sort of this neighborhood around the school he was at that school because he got kicked out of every other school and no one else would take him so he lived in sort of like this high-rise luxurious condo building with his mom and his dad was dead so i guess that was they're kind of hinting that that was a source of some of his psychological problems i don't know if you got that but that's was my takeaway he was kind of like stevie in one eight seven remember stevie the white kid who's like from like the good part of town but for whatever reason he's going to this terrible school stevie's backstory is this movie but uh yeah so they could have maybe done a little bit more character work on stegman and another connection is the fact that they killed the the lab animals remember in 187 they just killed the mouse that was the only lab animal but in uh class of 84 the uh, chemistry teacher he had like bunnies and i think like birds or something right and they yeah oh yeah he had he had a lab full of animals they killed they killed a lot of animals yeah there were a lot of dead lab rats and rabbits and other creatures around that room. It was, yeah. it, was it was pretty gruesome. Do we need to do a video essay connecting the two? <laughs> I, it's, it has a lot of similarities. I yeah. mean, it's like 187 decided to dial back class of 1984 because it was just a little too much. And it was a little yeah. over the top, especially that whole last part that just descends into violence and chaos. Well, I was I was surprised and maybe even a little shocked that they raped his wife. I'm like, whoa, they took it there. But then again, it's that like late seventies or I guess early eighties sensibility. They they just went there. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I was surprised too. Not only did they rape her, they gang raped her, and then yeah. they took pictures of it and gave it to him during the musical performance. That was brutal. Yeah, it but was, in a good way. It was raw. It was very yeah. raw. Yeah, because that's what a real gang does. Not a fucking tagging crew. Um, I forgot. Oh, yeah, that's right. They're a tagging crew in 187. So it's quote unquote tagging crew. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they didn't actually really commit any crimes besides tagging and like. Oh, no. Well, there was one murder, remember? Was there? That was Benny. I think Benny murdered oh, yeah. the guy. Yeah. Yeah, that was. 
yeah, down by the LA murder. River. Yeah. yeah, and he was under house arrest, so I guess he had done bad stuff. But Cesar, you didn't really see him do anything except like Mm-mm. hitting his mom and, under and like mouthing off, mouthing off a lot. Yeah. So then uh, the class of 1984, which was made in 1982, was followed by the class of 1999, which was made in 1990. I think right? so, 1989, 1990. And that movie is interesting because so it was made by the same filmmaker, but it flips, right? So in, in 90, the class of 1984, the teacher is the victim. And in the class of 1999, the students become the victims because... Uh, schools have become so dangerous and so gang infested that this one principal hires uh, these prototype Android teachers to run three of his classes and keep the students in line. And, you know, this ranges from corporal punishment. Like there's this great spanking scene to outright murder of the, of some of the students. So the thing about the schools is that the area around the school is considered like a no-go zone right and they even show that on the map it's like there's no law in the no-go zone and it's basically like mad max in these areas people are like on drugs they're violent there's gangs fighting each other and yet they're like see at school not believable why even bother going to school why would any of these guys go to school in these gangs i guess that's where your clients are for your drug dealing yeah, but they go to class too. Yeah, uh, yeah, and the uh, the principal lets his daughter go to the same school as these terrible yeah. gang members, but he just he tells her just to stay away from the gang members, right? But the whole school is in like a five mile nose, like a five mile radius around the school is like apocalyptic yeah. scene of destruction and violence, and then the kids are like oh, I got to go to school, man. I got to sit this math test. Like it makes no sense to me. It's it's a dystopian science fiction movie. Yes, yes. But I, that no, I sort of you. pulled me out of it just from the very beginning because, you know. Yeah. I agree with you there. But I, again, I was. I think we, we both agreed that we were, our, maybe our bar was so low that we were <laughs> somewhat pleasantly surprised because, <laughs> like story. I mentioned, yeah, there was, there was like great moments like when the... Uh, one of the, the Android teachers, he gets so fed up with one of the bad kids that he spanks him really hard to the point where the guy's cry. <laughs> I mean, there was a violent spanking. Yeah. But I like the, how the Android teachers would survey the scene and then you get like this little, their POV of what they're seeing through their Android eyes. It's like, they have a series of options. It's like, communicate, have a discussion, engage physically, like yeah. what they're going to do to each kid. And it's well, always engaged physically. It like well, escalates. I, I, I think the first time we see that is with Pam Greer, where like mm-hmm. uh, she's trying to like de-escalate the situation and it's not working. And then it's got a list of, I guess, physical responses. And one of them was karate moves. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> uh, so I got, I got a good chuckle out of that. And it had different elements that I thought, again, would have been uh, probably better in maybe better hands. Like the fact that, the androids were conspiring because like there's these gangs of kids and, and they all they all have feuds so they were like murdering members of the other gangs and making it look like the other gang did it mm-hmm. to like set up this gang war to eliminate the students and i thought that was a really great idea yeah i was like oh these guys are clever um but i think it was the head of the corporation's idea yeah and he for some reason he had weird eyes did we ever learn why no i thought he was might i thought he might have been a robot yeah 
but he wasn't. He just had weird eyes. Played by Stacy Keach, and I'm I know. a fan of Stacy <laughs> Like, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> Got to pay the bills, man. Um, but I think it kind of descended into silliness. I mean, it was silly from the beginning. The last sort of epic showdown battle yeah. was too long. It was too long. It was long, but I kind of liked it because, I mean, like you could see that eventually the gangs would have to like unite to fight them, and they finally did, and I like that. And then they had to figure out how to defeat all these different androids in different ways. And yeah. I, I enjoyed that too. Uh, but it was, I'll say it was a little long. Kind well, of it was me. like the faculty, but they had a better way of getting rid of their, their android faculty. Than the faculty? Than the actual faculty. Oh, had. Right. They, their ways were more clever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the faculty reminded me of this movie because in the faculty, the teachers became possessed by their body snatched by aliens here. Some of them turn out to be androids and you kind of mm-hmm. had the same setup going where it was, uh, and Oh, the, the main character in class in 1999, nobody believes them that these, these, uh, teachers are different or they're androids. Right? Yeah. So he has a really people. hard time convincing them. Yeah. So I, I, I wouldn't say that there's a direct connection between these two movies, but I think it's just, I think there happened to be some coincidences when you, your idea for a movie is kind of your teacher's, are different and your students have to fight back you're going to run into some of the same things yeah um, i liked it i liked it yeah yeah it wasn't bad had a good cast and then i watched half nelson after that so what did you think of it uh so i'd say overall i liked it i just had a t- like i didn't really get it um one i was trying to figure out why ryan gosling's character was doing drugs and maybe I'm being like too, I don't know, simplistic or like too kind of black and white about it. But like, it didn't seem that he had a real reason to do drugs, except he was, he seemed bored and he seemed, and George Bush was the president. Like that upset him because <laughs> he kept coming back to that. You know, people do drugs because they make them feel good. People do drugs because they're sad. I just assumed he did drugs and he just did drugs. I didn't need a reason, you know? Yeah, but if I don't, if he's gonna overcome them, then he needs to face the reason, doesn't he? Because he said I, the program I, didn't work for him. Yeah, um, you know what? To be honest, I don't think he is going to overcome them. Hmm. Yeah. So there's the scene where Ryan Gosling goes uh, to see his family for dinner, mm-hmm. and he's very distraught by this experience. And I didn't really understand why, except for the fact that they're just like very average middle-class kind of like boring people right but he seemed really bothered by having to be there i think i think in that scene you clearly saw that there's addiction issues with the parents and it was alcohol was it addiction i thought they were just having like a family dinner and everybody got drunk isn't that i kind of sort of i i inferred that maybe there was some alcohol problems in the family I got that feeling too because they would zoom they like zoomed in on the on the glasses and the bottles of wine throughout and then there was tons of wine I mean to be fair lots of people keep lots of lots of people keep alcohol on hand um I don't know I that was just the feeling that I got and that he had a hard time talking to them because maybe they were always kind of blitzed because you know he was trying to talk to his mom in the kitchen and it was I felt like that was a routine he'd been through before yeah. I mean, again, like I said, I liked it. I just felt like it didn't maybe go deep enough into certain things. I mean, there was other parts that I just love. Like, I think my favorite scene in that movie is his interaction with Anthony Mackie. 
mm-hmm. uh, where like, again, one of the great things about this movie is how it kind of uh, defies the stereotypes, right? So Anthony Mackie's this drug dealer, but he doesn't actually seem like that bad of a guy. Right. So he seems to be, uh, his friend went to prison and he's trying to look out for his little sister. I don't think he has any like bad intentions with well, her. Well, I mean, he had her dealing drugs. Yeah, but it didn't... It, Again, for some reason, it didn't feel that like nefarious. It was just like, this is what you want to like. This is what we do. Yeah, this is what we do. Yeah, I get that. The white teacher comes to confront him. He could go all quote unquote gangbanger on him. But instead, he's like, hey, these are my buddies. You want to come for come in for Mm -hmm. a drink? Let's just talk about this. Like, why are you blowing up in my face? And I just I really like that scene. I liked how they they turn turn those like stereotypes upside down. They subverted our expectations. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is Ryan Gosling's most emotive performance, probably. It is. It is. Um, so yeah, he was good in it. And yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I liked it. I just and I was I wasn't really sure what the what, like was what was the message of the movie for you. Um, I think that not everyone is all good and all bad, and you sort of fall somewhere depending on each day somewhere on the scale Mm -hmm. but that doesn't stop you from sort of reaching out and connecting with other people that's kind of what i got from it yeah that makes sense i mean there's a a lot of movies interact with this idea of what makes a person good or what makes a person bad right yeah and good people do bad things Mm -hmm. and bad people do good things and it's just and not everyone's all bad all the time i mean like even serial killers get married and have children. Yeah. So I think that's what, that's what I took away from it. Did you, did you think there was a commentary on race? Well, like you said, it subverted our expectations of um, what you expected the white teacher to do and sort of the black people in the neighborhood to do. And the school, right? Because he's teaching in this inner city school. So based on various other movies and our, well, based on a lot of movies we've seen and like kind of the social narrative they're supposed to be just these awful places but mm-hmm. they actually seem fine right oh and cool. his kids love him like yeah. he doesn't come into the classroom and it's like throwing uh spitballs and being like disrespectful and outrageous no they love him yeah they're just being you know t- tweens right i think they're like mm-hmm. 12 or 13 yeah and yeah so and he then- teaches he teaches this class and he's the kids are engaged i mean he's not really following the curriculum um but he's doing the best he can and he wants to do the best he can, but he still also has an addiction problem, which yeah. interferes with his ability to be the best teacher that he can be. Do you remember in the beginning, he checks his messages and one of the messages is for his credit card debt. It's like a debt collector. Was that what that was? I can't. I, I can't yeah. Remember. And I was, I, I was confused about like what, what the point of that was. Cause they never followed that through. Maybe just, that he owes money. He's got a lot of debt. And that's Maybe just to reason. show like the general chaos of his life. Cause his like the general like sort of disorder and chaos of his home, of his personal right. life. It's interesting. You mentioned that. Cause if you watch it, like his life, like his kind of day to day in his life, they go through these waves, right? Like things get really disordered. He does a lot of drugs, but then like after that, it like calms down. He like cleans up his apartment. He seems to be like on the straight and narrow for a while. And then something triggers him and he goes back. So it's like this kind of yo-yo, right? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so maybe drugs we go by. Why does he take drugs? Because he can't cope. So drugs are his coping mechanism. But cope with what? <laughs> cope with the disorder that he's made of his life. I mean, I, we don't, I don't know. Right. 
he had that relationship. Remember the girlfriend comes back and then mm-hmm. right after she he talks to her, he goes and he smokes crack in the, the bathroom of the girl's yeah. uh, gym or the girl's locker room. Yeah, it's yeah, it's an interesting movie. I li- I liked it. it. Gives you things to think about. Mm-hmm. Speaking of nice guys. <laughs> ah, you did it this time. I did. <laughs> My pick of the week is The Nice Guys, starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe, directed by Shane Black. And it's 1977 Los Angeles and a bumbling private investigator played by Ryan Gosling and a hired some hired muscle played by Russell Crowe join forces as an unlikely pair to Cherche La Femme. And La Femme is a girl named Amelia. And she sits in the middle of a complicated conspiracy involving porn, cars, pollution, and the 1977 Los Angeles auto show. So, yes. So, yeah, I mean, reading that makes this movie sound like it's, it's like an overstuffed turkey. It's just about to come, come, <laughs> come apart the scene. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot. Um, do, do you think the number one reason you like this movie is because it's a period piece? Um, I think there's three reasons why I really like this movie. Okay. One is it's a period piece. Two, it's a crime sort of neo-noir comedy. And three, I like the chemistry between the leads, the three leads. And I'm mm-hmm. including the little girl who plays Holly. Yeah, she was good. But that is not to say that this movie is free of all problems because it's definitely not. So um, before I watched this, I had the compulsion to watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang again. Because I'm like, aren't these movies really similar? I did the same exact thing. Are you serious? Yeah, I did. I rewatched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang because I hadn't seen it for several years. So yeah. I kind of like had a, like you said, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. It's yeah. like, they're, they're very similar movies. It's, I mean, they're, so there's this one review saying, if you like Shane Black, you will like the nice guys. It's probably the Shane Blackest of all Shane Black movies. <laughs> Although I don't know, maybe it's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, yeah, I mean Shane Black. He's uh, he's I, I don't know what to say about Shane Black. Do you know the story about uh, Lethal Weapon? Which one? Which story? So, well, one it that was his first screenplay, and it created like one of the biggest bidding wars in Hollywood. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But then he has a very unique way of writing scripts, where he addresses the script reader. And I think uh, it was in Lethal Weapon where like he's about to go in to describe some scene and he's like, this scene is so good that the audience is just going to pull down their pants and start jerking off in the theater. <laughs> oh, I never heard that story. Yeah. Um, and I just, I looked up a lot of, a couple other quotes from his scripts just because they're so, uh, well, they're, they're funny if you're a script reader. So this is another one from Lethal Weapon. Exterior, posh Beverly Hills home, Twilight. The kind of house that I'll buy if this movie's a huge hit. Chrome, glass, <laughs> carved wood, plus an outdoor solarium. A glass structure like a greenhouse, only there's a, there's a big swimming pool inside. This is a really great place to have sex. And then <laughs> this one's from The Last Boy Scout. Remember Jimmy's friend, Henry, who we met briefly near the opening of the film? Of course you do. You're a highly paid reader or development person. It sounds like Robert Downey Jr.'s voiceover from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. Um, so his movies are... I don't want to use 
I mean, they're formulaic, but it's his formula, right? You, yes. You've got I mean, he's always working with the same sort of pieces, but he rearranges them differently. Yeah. Um, also, I found out that the kidnapping uh, plot device is in like five or six of his movies. So that, that's another <laughs> one. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll put it this way. I mean, going back to the overstuffed turkey, I'd say for a two-hour movie, it had an hour of material I really enjoyed. And then some of it was just a little too much, right? It's a little mm. too like tongue in cheek and a little too quote unquote cool. It's like wink, hey, wink. Uh, yes. Once it gets to the auto show, I'm over it. Uh, yeah. I mean, That's it, how I feel about the movie. I oh. enjoy everything. And then we get to that auto show and the shootout and everything else. I'm like, I'm done with it. But that first part, I can watch that a million times. The, the, w- within the auto show sequence, I did like the part uh, after Ryan Gosling like falls from the roof, like the next I don't mm-hmm. know, it was like five minutes where he's just like getting knocked around by like cars and like getting shot at. Like that whole sequence I actually liked a lot. Yes. I Okay. I will go with that. Yeah. But you know what? This movie also has something that lots of movies don't do very well is it has lots of great setups and great payoffs. One of the best being the whole John Boy reference, which they set up in the very beginning when they talk uh-huh. about the, Walt- the Waltons comes on TV and then the kids talk about John Boy and then, the- and then um, Matt Bomer's character is named John Boy, but we don't know why until we see the big mole on his face, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen the Waltons. Oh, I haven't. No. Okay, so, so the, he was John Boy. I don't know who John. So Boy. the payoff is that the character, the guy, the actor who plays John Boy on the Waltons, has a huge mole on his face, okay. just like Matt Bomer's character. So when he turns, the kids automatically recognize that. Oh, John Boy. Okay. Yeah. See, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, but if you got it, you're like, oh, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it, it actually it does because like the fact that he doesn't have a sense of smell, and then they mm-hmm. pay it off because that's why his house burned down with his wife in it because he couldn't smell the gas leak, right? Right. Yeah, so does that, there's a couple of those. I'm like, oh, this, uh, this, this is clever. And then there's that whole fact that neither one of them is a very good detective. Russell Crowe just beats people up, and Ryan Gosling's yeah. an awful detective, and he kind of just falls into his clues. Yeah. The only person who's a good detective is his, like, 12-year-old daughter, Holly. <laughs> but together... But all together, they make a great team. (laughs) I like Holly because she has sort of that sort of 70s kid sensibility from like Jodie Foster and Freaky Friday and like the Bad News Bears where the kids are just sort of very mature for their age. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't and they're not cute. There's nothing precocious about or precious about them. They're very um, raw and like feisty. And I like that. Yeah, I did like that too. And all the jokes about her friends that ryan gosling makes right like oh go stay at like what's her name's house yeah it's like shannon sharon what did you think of mystery plot i thought it was a little a little on the like too too complicated too sort Mm. of intricate and convoluted side i agree i think there are way too many MacGuffins, and i think i just ignore i mean some of the some of the things that they put together sort of like um amelia running the tape and then the the aunt seeing misty mountains in the house when she's really seeing the movie. I was like, okay, that works. I get that. Um, But then the whole thing with the whole plot was that they were going to tell the world about the catalytic converter scheme through a porno movie. It just was silly. Yeah. Uh, It made, it uh, made me think of inherent vice. Remember that? Did you ever see that? Is that with Joaquin Phoenix? Yeah, which also had like a very convoluted mystery. And he was kind of this like pothead detective that wasn't, very good yeah he was bumbling yeah yeah he was bumbling as well 
You know um, what this movie kind of felt like? If you took the Big Lebowski and like threw in some Tarantino in it almost, uh, you would kind of get this movie. Because there was like, there were elements as far as the, like the, the, the mystery and the plot and the, all the various actors within the mystery plot that kind of made me think of, of the Big Lebowski. But then um, sort of the, the tone of the movie was in some ways very, very Tarantino. Yeah, there, so speaking of Tarantino, so in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's this party at the Playboy Mansion. I didn't like it. I didn't think it was a really well done scene. The one with Steve McQueen? Yes. Yeah. I didn't like it at all. Um, I was like, oh, here's a chance to like, he could have really done a great job with that. Yeah. Then there's a party here that's like at a porn producer's mansion. And it's a great party scene. That's like probably one of the best scenes in the movie. And it's a long scene. And it just sort of, I felt like I was at the party. Everything going on in the background, all the little details. And you had like the band. Um, what was the band? I can't remember. It was uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Earth, right? Wind, and Fire, yeah. yeah. So then you had the Earth, Wind, and Fire um, the performing, mermaids. and the mermaids, and that, yeah, and the, and the porn viewing, and the yeah. naked people, and people in costumes. It was just over the top, and the attention to detail and time and place. Uh, it was really good. It was probably the best part of that movie, I think. And then, but then you. Uh, go back to kiss kiss bang bang and there's a very similar yes, party a party yes with like weird costumed people in like like giant like, yeah. boxes, glass boxes or aquariums yeah they have naked yeah. people it was yeah. like guys doing stuff and, bo- and plexiglass boxes <laughs> yeah so he went through his uh weird party phase shane black at this point yeah i mean that that party really vibed like 70s it had some great lines in there too so yeah yeah, so, that. Yeah, overall, it was, that was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, maybe cut it, it down. Hey, Jake, it's not Chinatown. But I do like, I wanted, I've been wanting to throw that in there. But it did try. So, like, Chinatown had, like, the water and this has the pollution. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's so also it was a doing, conspiracy movie. Mm-hmm, but it, it, they did their conspiracy a little bit better. Yeah. And so, in LA Confidential, same thing. It has, like, this sort of wide-reaching conspiracy. Um, their, that conspiracy is really convoluted, too. But everything else around it worked really well that you kind of forgave how complicated the mystery was in LA Confidential. And that also featured Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger. It did. Yeah. It did. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I also own that movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, with the, the third act, it's really, really messy. Um, it's hard to pull all those threads together. The fact that the porn movie, and I, I think that they could have had the porn movie being like sort of this key to solving the mystery. That could have worked, but not the way that it's, they're using it in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, sounds like a streamer for you. It is a streamer for me. I, I really like this movie, except for the last part. Yeah. And I think, honestly, if they were given a sequel, I bet you the sequel might possibly be better than the first movie. Oh, because you think they might tone, tone it down a little bit as far yeah. as the, the plotting? Yeah. They would know what, what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. yeah and the, I thought that it felt like they kind of set it up at the end, but maybe that was just... They're making kind of a joke as far as their next case. Yeah, but if they did do one, I think their chemistry is amazing together and they play off each other really well. And that's one of the point, one of the things I really enjoy about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So let's move on. Another, <laughs> another <mystery>. movie, <laughs> another mystery thriller. 
let's talk about 1981's Diva, directed by Jean-Jacques Beignet, starring Wilhelmina Fernandez, Frederick André, and Richard Bowringer. What is this movie about? Well, uh, let's say it's about a young postal man who is obsessed with an opera diva. He bootlegs a recording of one of her performances, and there are evil gangsters who are chasing him down thinking that that tape is another tape that implicates them in a human trafficking ring. Do you think that sums it up? Yeah, but there's a lot more stuff going on. Right. Besides that, but yes. So uh, I, was, I was doing some research on this, and it turns out that this, uh, the style of this movie is known as Cinema du Luc. Are you familiar with this? No. Cinema du Luc is a, a French style from the 80s and 90s. And I guess the three key directors, according to Wikipedia, is Jean-Jacques Benet, who directed this, Luc Besson, who you're probably mm, familiar with, yeah. and Leo Carra. And the definition of cinema du look is, and I'll just read this from Wikipedia, uh, it's said to favor style over substance, spectacle over narrative. It referred to films that had the slick, gorgeous, and visual style focusing on young, alienated characters. Themes that run through many of these films include doom love affairs, young people more affiliated to peer groups and families, cynical view of the police, and the use of scenes in the Paris metro to symbolize an alternative underground society. Uh, so for me, this the reason I like this movie is definitely the style and the look of it. Um, and here the plot, I think, is in a lot of ways secondary. Although I think the sort of the primary plot is the, well, I don't know, would you say that the, the human trafficking is the primary plot? Or the bootleg tape is the primary plot? Um, I think the human trafficking is the primary plot, but the bootleg tape is way more interesting. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because so the bootleg tape is a, it revolves around this opera singer who has never put out a recording of any kind because she doesn't believe it in, it in recording as an artist. And he's gone to three different performances. And in each time he's, he's recorded a bootleg copy on this very high-end recording device. He wrote, um, he wrote his moped from Paris to Munich. <laughs> yeah, to see her. So he, I mean, he's her. genuinely in love with her as a performer and lady, later as a, as a person. So he does this for himself. He doesn't intend to sell mm-hmm. it. But there are other parties who find, find out about it and they do want to get involved on the business. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the look of this movie. I like, like it, it, some parts get a little weird, but like not too weird for me. Like the scenes with the, um, he, I guess he's known as the philosopher. They keep calling him the philosopher in the movie. The guy who like solves the largest jigsaw puzzle in the world at one oh. point. <laughs> he, he, oh, smokes in every scene, who makes dinner while wearing a uh, scuba, what do you call that? Or like a snorkel. Yeah, snorkel, snorkel mask. And snorkel he, he mask. like was slathering caviar onto that baguette. Like yeah. it was nobody's business. I don't, think it's his, I don't think it's his girlfriend. I, I was trying to figure that out. It's not clear how old she is. She might be underage, but maybe just like, just sh- maybe just shy of 18. Yeah. I but, felt like she was like his ward. Yeah. But there's like, I guess she's not taking the nude photos of her. She's taking nude photos of herself and hanging yeah. up. She was, she was strange, but in like an interesting way. Uh, but it, you know, this movie is all, it's very heavy on atmosphere, very mm-hmm. heavy on looks. Well, what is it? Uh, Cinema de look. The look. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel like the plot is like, whatever. 
kind of like nice guys. Like, okay, it's two tapes, whatever. This movie is pretty to look at. Right. And um, it's got, according to Ebert, one of the, I think it was Ebert, it was Pauline Kale. One of them said it was like one of the greatest chase scenes, a lot like up there with the conversation and bullet, which I don't know if I agree with that, but I really like the chase scene through the Paris Metro. He's on a moped, the cops just on foot trying to chase him down, mm-hmm. like jumping onto subway cars. That, that was a great sequence. Yeah, I don't know if it's better than Bullet. Or the conversation. But yeah, it was, it was really well made uh, in that sense. And yeah, it was, just, uh, it was just an experience. I just sat back and I absorbed it all. Yeah, the story, I found it to be kind of slow, but I didn't really mind it because I liked how the movie looked. And um, I got mine off of Amazon. So it wasn't a re and it wasn't remastered. So it wasn't like that great, but it still was enough to be like, that's especially that scene where they, they um, it's called sentimental walk. If there's like, if you want to look up the clip, it's called sentimental walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that, the beautiful little piano solo and there he's walking with what's her name? Catherine, the, the opera singer, the diva. And the diva yeah. And Jules and Catherine are walking and they're just walking around Paris and it's like dusk and they go into the park and there's like shots of like statues and trees. And there's the two of them framed like in a photograph or a painting. And it's just, just like four minutes of just beautiful, lovely camera work. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I was going to say that. So both this movie and uh, Hiroshima Monomore are in Vimeo. Oh, they are? And actually, I found out, yeah, if you do some searching, there's a lot of uh, foreign and artsy films on Vimeo that, like, uh, film professors post for their class to watch. Oh, that's probably a better copy than what I saw then. Eh, it was okay. Oh, it wasn't okay, maybe great. not. Yeah. I, don't, I okay. wonder if there's, I was curious, if there's, like, a remastered Blu-ray version, because it could, with, like, better resolution, it would look even mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. There should be, because it's gorgeous to look at. Um, I didn't really care about like the characters though, which I like. I just didn't care. I like the I like the scenes between um, Jules and the Diva and the Diva, um, but I just didn't care about them. There's like sort of no emotional connection I made with the characters. Yeah, and there was a, I felt there was a bit of a leap because she finds out. So he he steals her dress at one point after her performance, and then he goes and returns it to her in her hotel room, and. So, she, I mean, she interprets this as like, she interprets his behavior as like basically stalking, right? She kind of sees him as a stalker, but then she agrees to like go on a date with him and then he sleeps over on the couch in her mm-hmm. hotel room on the couch and then they like spend the day together. I thought like that was kind of a weird leap for her to make, especially given the the type of uh, performance she is. You'd think she probably has a lot of stalkers because she doesn't record and she's kind of eccentric, right? I feel like yeah, that would but attract she- them. She appreciated that he really loved music. Because he drove his moped from All Paris the way to Munich. <laughs> Munich, exactly. <laughs> yeah. She, she said that. She brought it up like twice. So yeah. I think she, he impressed her enough that she was able to trust him a bit. Even though, yeah, it is crazy that like he stole the dress and he's a little bit like stalkerish. But she's like, okay. I also liked how so he stole the dress and then at one point he hires a prostitute to wear it for him. I don't mm-hmm. I don't even know if they had sex. Maybe I think he just she just like modeled it for him. And then later when he's sort of on the run and he can't go anywhere, he goes back to that prostitute and asks to stay at her house because he has nowhere else to go and she lets him. And I was like, Wow, French prostitutes are very friendly. <laughs> the kindness of the French prostitute's yeah. heart. Yeah. We're all one big community. Mm-hmm. Um the plot with uh, 
the plot with uh, human trafficking, I didn't mind so much, but like this, the half twist that it was the, uh, the mastermind was the police chief. I knew that. I picked it from the very beginning. Well, they have that scene in the car where they kind of like obstruct him, but you can tell it's him, right? Like when you they, can tell it's his mustache in the rear view mirror. I knew that before that. Okay, so when that woman gets sort of uh, murdered in the street before she drops that second tape, Mm-hmm. or right after she drops that second tape into uh, Jules's uh, mailbag. And then the cops go back to the headquarters and they're like telling the story of like what happened, how the woman died, why they were there. And the police chief is like asking all these questions. I'm like, oh, he's, he's involved in this. I knew it. I just knew it. Well, either way, I just thought, I don't know. We've seen that before, like LA confidential, I guess that's oh, after, yeah. but yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's been done a few times. So mm-hmm. that, that I wasn't really interested in that reveal. No, I didn't care about that plot at all. No, but I did like how uh, the uh, philosopher, I guess that's what I'll just call him, uh, Mm. turned out to be some sort of, well, so we know that he's been to Vietnam, right? Because that's where he he saves this girl. Uh So you know that he's probably had some uh, training or participation in uh, uh, like warfare or whatever you want to call it. But, and then we see it because it turns out he's like this master spy almost, right? But yeah, I liked how the uh, the guardian, the philosopher guardian, like he turned out to be kind of this badass spy and he was uh, just uh, sort of outsmarting everyone. Well, with his car blew up and then he opens the garage, he's got like the same exact car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, ah, I like that. I like your style. Yeah. <laughs> And then he was like Batman at the end where he like shuts off the lights. So then uh, mm-hmm. the, po- the police chief had to go, he pressed the button and he moved it. So he like fell into the elevator shaft. Yeah. And then the lights are back on, but he's gone and no one knows. Who it's, him. <laughs> it's a secret yeah. life. Yeah. Double life. He's like uh, Jules guardian angel. So yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's a renter for me. And the first time I saw it, uh, I think my parents rented it. Mm-hmm. And um, had I not found it on Vimeo, I would have rented it as well because I think it looks looks amazing and I love the atmosphere and the tone of it. I'm going to say it's a stream it just because I thought it was a little, for me, I found little parts of it slow and the sort of characters, for me, it was a, a something to look at. Yeah. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah, if you want to, if you come across it and if it's on Vimeo, go check it out. So what do you have for next week? You go first. No, I'm not going to go first because you change yours depending on what I pick. Oh, okay. So I'm uh, going to do it this week. You go first because I'll change mine depending on what you pick. Okay. Um, so when I was watching Class of 1999 and there was the final battle at the end in the school with the, the students against the three androids, it made me think of the movie The Running Man. And mm-hmm. now I want to watch it again. So that's my pick. Okay, cool. My pick is this movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? It's from 1969, and it stars Jane Fonda. And uh, it's not available anywhere, but it is on YouTube. Okay, cool. I've, I believe I've heard of that movie, but I haven't seen it. And isn't that like a, a award-winning movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I haven't seen it in a really long time, and... I kind of got to thinking about it and I want to watch it again. So I'm going to watch it for this and you're going to watch it too. Yeah. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) All right. 
Okay, well, I'm Sydney. And I'm Jake. And you've been listening to Two for the Matinee. Join us next week when Jake's pick is... The Running Man. And my pick is... They They shoot shoot horses, don't they? I I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) I gotcha. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Stay nice. That was a reference to the nice guys. Oh, yeah, that's cute.